Hello there, this is How to Murder Time, a podcast about books and things. Hello everybody. Hello there. Watcher. It's a book one. We're back with the book one again. Yeah, yes. we, we've got another Hugo book. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. You picked it, didn't you, John? I did. Yes, this is Neuromancer by William Gibson, the classic uh, book which effectively created cyberpunk as a genre. From 1985. I think the word is, I think the word seminal, although I'm not quite sure precisely what that word means in context, really. But um, yes, this is um, William Gibson's Neuromancer. This is the 1985 winner. Do you want me to do the back of the book? If you must. Yeah, here we go. I do enjoy this bit. Uh, the Matrix, a world within a world, a graphic representation of the databanks of every computer in the human system, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate users in the sprawl alone, and by Case, computer cowboy, until his nervous system is grievously maimed by a client he double-crossed. Japanese experts in nerve splicing and microbionics have left him broken close to dead. But at last, Case has found a cure. He's going back into the system, not for the bliss of cyberspace, but to steal again, this time from the boy the almighty mega courts. In return, should he survive, he will stay cured. Cyberspace and virtual reality were invented in this book. It stands alongside 1984 and Brave New World as one of the 20th, uh, 20th century's most potent novels of the future. Mm. That's, that's awfully in-depth and specific for the back of a book, to be honest. Yeah, and most of it's before the book starts. <laughs> it's like it's <laughs> setting you up for the, uh, the opening of the book itself, which is unusual. I would love to read the prequel. The prequel. Um, well, though this did actually come off the back of some short stories he'd written prior to this. Um, Burning Chrome, in particular, is one you can find. I think there's a short story anthology of the same name, with there's, there's some uh, a variety of different short stories. And Burning Chrome sort of presents us with um, this sort of proto case figure who is a sort of hacker and, and does a bit of the cyberspace thing. He does a raid on a brothel's inf information systems to steal a load of money. And you can see a lot of the early ideas appear in there. And also Johnny Mnemonic. Do you remember that? It, it's a brilliant film adaptation. Uh, yeah, but that, 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 again, was a short story which sort of introduces what produces the, the Molly character as well. So so there's a lot of prequel thing here, but this is, this is his first go at a proper novel. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's important because I didn't think much of it until I realised he'd never written a novel before. Mm. And then I then I thought a lot more of it after that. Yeah, I sort of read, I read some sort of autobiographical notes written, but yeah, picked up from sort of Gibson himself after the fact. And it seems like he'd written this in something of a hurry. I hadn't really known what he was doing when he's putting it together. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if that shows. He hid it well. <laughs> As a debut novel, yes. Not, yeah. not bad. Not a bad attempt at all. So, okay, shall we, shall we go through? Well, first of all, John, why did you why did we go for the, why did you pick this out? I mean, why did you pick this one for us? I picked this choice? one because uh, Netrunner released an expansion which I got, and I thought, <laughs> oh, that's Cyberpunk. And Netrunner as a game is very much based on this book and the ideas that started with this book. It is it influenced so much of popular culture when it comes to cyberspace and yeah even calling it the matrix they made a film of the same name only yeah, the yeah. one yeah <laughs> i mean I, I don't know a lot, a lot of people forget that it, the gibson refers not to it to it not necessarily as cyberspace as such but as as the matrix throughout uh neuromancer so i think cyberspace comes up as the name of one of the decks they use to access the thing sort of oh no sendai cyberspace 7 or something so but yeah the um the sort of groundwork for a whole 
speculative, gritty, dystopian, near-future kind of movement in science fiction at the time, um, which has yeah, led on to a lot of spin-offs and, and influences since. And as I was reading it, I kept on thinking about Blade Runner, because mm. Blade Runner is, is the image I get in my head for the first third of the book. And apparently, after he'd written a third of the book, he saw Blade Runner and thought, oh, shit, they're going <laughs> to think I've copied this. Because it came out just before this. There are a lot of similar power influences, yeah. Mm. Okay, so let's, 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 have a, let's have a crack through the story then, the, the overall plot. Um, so, yes, we meet, we, first of all, we meet Case, who's like a, basically a washed-up sort of hustler in, uh, in Chiba City, a sort of uh, industrial expatriate enclave on the outskirts of Tokyo. Um, and he's basically just a street punk turning drug deals and uh, trying to sort of fight for a kind of grubby sort of life in this, this, um, this sort of pleasure city, Ninsei place, night city. Uh, and it's, it is grime, it is, it is hustle, it is, uh, yeah, you think in the visuals of Blade Runner when you're reading through it, the sort of the, the steamy neon streets of it all and lots of ne'er-do-wells huddling in street corners and so on. Yeah, to the point where it was always raining mm. for me. It probably but, wasn't in the book, but uh, well, no, in no, my no. mind's eye, it was always raining. I mean, it's got that sort of iconic opening sentence there. I've got it just here. The sky above the port was the colour of television tuned to a dead channel. It's not like a musing case, heard someone say, as he shoulders his way through the crowd amongst the door of the chat. It's like my body's developed this massive drug deficiency. It sort of, you know, it carries on in that kind of grubby style. I mean, it is quite a grubby book all the way through. It's also completely written in a noir style. Yes. It, it is so wants to be a Raymond Chandler book. It doesn't have that sort of first-person narrative going through it. But that's merely a device he's not using, and it very, very much feels like it could be being sort of, you know, narrated for a constant streaming yeah. protagonist voiceover. Yeah. But it, it's, it never quite reaches the heights where that works as a... Uh, framing device. It, well, I, think he, I think he's almost deliberately subverting that in a way. You've got, you haven't got this sort of, you know, the sort of Raymond Chandler character as hero, who's, who's, you know, down on his luck and and, and uh, the victim of poor circumstances, but essentially a decent and right-thinking guy. I mean, Case is not generally a hero in that sort of sense at all. Well, Case is, um, what's the polite way to say it? A complete moron. <laughs> He he lost his ability to work because he betrayed people for a bit of money. Yeah, yeah. probably because he needed the drugs. Stole from his employers. Yeah. And, and yeah, so you get this sort of sort of hinted at, but never really fully explained backstory, as you say, the prequel sort of aspect of it, where cases apparently has been this this really sort of you know top notch data thief cyber cowboy type and he's you know he's done work and hung out in the right kind of fashionable bars and so on and had all the contacts and stuff and was really at the top of his game and taught by the best and everything but then yeah he, he steals from his employers who then use uh, go to extremely uh, great lengths to mess up his nervous system in such a way that he can't jack into cyberspace anymore yeah, but without killing him yeah and they, they want he, him alive they even tell him to keep the money because he's going to need it when we're going to make sure you can never work again which is sort of, you know, eventually leads him down to this sort of low-level street hustler, drug dealer sort of life that he, he is sort of wallowing through at the uh, start of the book. And it is wallowing. I mean, you get this real sense of he doesn't much care if he lives or dies. He's sort of going through the motions. And I think, you know, later on, one of the characters, one of the other characters says that, you know, our psych profile says you're trying to trick the street into killing you, you know. That's sort of... And, and, and that's really... 
you know, as you said before, Tiago, about trying to grip and get the get the reader on board early on. This this is quite a hard ask early on. Yeah, I mean, he's he's miserable. He's you know, ridden with a lack of drugs or or with drugs, one or the other. <laughs> yes. as you go on. Yeah. The the up, you know, that he's aiming to be able to have more drugs. That's pretty much all yeah, he's looking yeah. for. From he's, his, he's either coming book. down and not enjoying it, or not got enough and not enjoying it. And, and and you sort of any sympathy you could possibly generate for the character because of you know he's had a hard time, or whatever, is, is is not there because you know very early on it's established he did this to himself anyway. You know, he's he's put himself in this situation through his own stupid greed. It's very much I don't know. Is anti-hero the word, or is he not even that? I don't think he's even present. that. Because he's yeah. not in anti-heroes are sort of they do the right thing despite themselves. Mm. He doesn't. He just does things despite it's, himself. He's quite a passive character throughout the book. Yeah. So he's the sort of person if you met him in a bar, you'd probably leave the bar because he smells, <laughs> and, <laughs> ignoring his personality, which would be another issue. Yeah. So you get this sort of early section of the book, uh, the sort of part, as it were, which is. Um, the Chiba City Blues section, which is, uh, despite Case himself, see again, here we are again in a, another Hugo novel where where the world building becomes quite a distinct and separate thing from the narrative story and telling and the characterization of it all. Again, you get this really well painted, sort of grubby future neon city, you know, a bit like the, the Blade Runner visuals, but in your head. You know, we get quite a, a sort of in depth uh, following him around on his, on his petty little deals and the, you know, the, the sort of the, uh, the cheating devious girlfriend and the the various business contacts he owes money to and the barkeep and so on who sort of has this wry amusement and you know, watching him sort of wreck his life and try and try and scrabble through it all and it really does paint quite a, a wide-ranging and, and interesting sort of back, mm. backdrop to the it's, whole thing it's a miserable but yeah. very very oh, great yeah. world building that yeah. place is a place you can imagine you can almost sort of see the neon as you mm. as you listen to it or you watch it watch through it but there's this issue where if you had raymond chandler you'd be empathizing with the poor sap with his turned down hat and his sort of collar pulled up walking through the rain and in this you just think well the, the place is a shithole but the person I'm following is way, the person yeah. I'm following is in no way somebody I care about. Every mm. time where his life was in danger, I did not care. <laughs> he does, yeah. He, he he gets sort of chased around a bit. There's this mysterious person stalking him, and then one of his business deals is suddenly going south. And I think it sort of transpires that he's, he, he, of course, he's driving himself into intense paranoia through through drug overload, overdose as well. He's on he's on he's on all sorts of crazy amphetamines and things, and developing this massive paranoid sort of episode over over a couple of days where he thinks he's being followed. It turns out he is being followed. So I think Linda Lee is his current girlfriend, and she is basically just robbing him, uh, and then sets him up and drives his paranoia into into sort of making him leg it so that she can steal from him. So there's this sort of petty minor B story going on there that I it was a sort of quite quite a good establishment thing, but in in and of itself wasn't that that great or interesting. Yeah, she's pretty rubbish. Yeah, I mean, I think his mate, who's the old guy, you know, with a locked door and a gun, uh, is a far more interesting person. Julius Dean, yeah, yeah. he's a sort of he's a he's I, a very old uh, importer exporter smuggler type with, with impeccable manners and taste in suits and things. Yeah, I liked him. If he'd been the one to survive the first third and go on for the story, I'd have mm. been far more interested. I never quite got why 
he had anything to do with a case. It must have been mm. something from before, but it's one of the things that obviously he hadn't burnt. Because yeah. case as is, it's completely useless to him. Well, a lot of it's informability. You're getting you're being told that he's doing deals and has contacts and so on and is respected by the other the other sort of hoodlums and low lowlifes and whatever, but none of that actually seems apparent yeah. in, in the stuff we see. Oh, you know? It's possible that this guy is just there, he's being employed by the people that drugged him to report on his suffering for, for years <laughs> wow. going forward. Mm. He's still suffering. He's right on the edge of suicide. Oh, good. We'll send you another couple of hundred dollars or, and uh, keep reporting. Yeah, yeah. So so we get this fantastic painted sort of picture of a character at rock bottom. Uh, and then, then, of course, it turns out, yes, actually, he is being stalked. And we're introduced to Molly, the, the other sort of pivotal character of the uh, scene, who's, who's a sort of archetypal street samurai sort of hired, hired muscle professional to be fair, type. she is archetypal, but uh, when you read this, she wasn't archetypal. Since then, At the time, ev- no, quite. every clueless non-entity has created someone in metal sort of bikini with all of these weapons it's yeah. become a cliche but at the time it wasn't <laughs> so she's she's um she's just dressed in leather got uh, mirrored shade insets it's not actually glasses it's 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 glass panels insert in, inset into her face <laughs> you're just gonna sweat and they're gonna fog up <laughs> and of course the 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 iconic well i say iconic as you say yeah this is sort of invented in this novel really she's got the sort of uh, razor beads under the fingernails which extend and retract like claws and she's basically presenting Please don't this, sue Marvel. <laughs> presented as this all-round badass, really, sort of had her nervous system wired, you know, jacked up, so she can be this hyper-effective combatant, stroke bodyguard, stroke assassin type. She's been sent to find Case and round him up and bring him bring him to to meet uh, a new employer. Um, who the, the, this is the chap Armitage, who's the, who again another sort of this 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 whole book is absolutely sort of filled with the the tropes of the genre, obviously because it's so so pivotal in inventing the genre. But so we have the sort of the career suit, you know, literally a suit. He's, he's basically a man with no no sort of expressions, no no backstory, no past, uh, but obviously a lot of money uh, and and a sort of grim demeanor who just hires is who's hiring on people to do stinge corporate shenanigans and so on. Uh, and it is, you know, all of these things, as you say, are cliches that have gone on for years afterwards. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem with that is not this book. The mm. problem with that is that. Everybody who latched onto cyberpunk had no imagination worth a damn. So nobody's come up with a new idea in the 30 years since this book. You'll end up with one of the five or six key character archetypes that all directly spin off of this book. Yeah, and which go on to be the core of... It's a bit like the first D&D book. You know, you've got your thief, your cleric, your magic user and your fighter. And... And then from then on, every role-playing game in, yeah, yeah. in existence has the, the same... The deck cowboy, div- the, the street the same samurai, the, 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 the corporate this, yeah. suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, in, in, in a literal sense, if you think about Shadowrun, which essentially is D&D in, cybersp- in cyberpunk town. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. So anyway, Armitage hires, has hired Molly and has moved, then moved on to pick up Case. And he's, he's putting together a team for a job. Uh, and, and it's all very mysterious. Uh, but... Uh, Armitage offers to repair Case's uh, nervous damage because then he can do some cyber 
cyber hacking for, for, for Armitage on this big job. And, and you know, at this point, Case has got really nothing to lose, so uh, submits to the surgery. And the surgery, it turns out, is this so innovative and pioneering that they that uh, Armitage himself gives the clinic the procedure on how to undo this damage, how to reverse it all. It's that cutting edge. Which, you know, immediately sort of, sort of sets Case suspicious. Um, but yeah, as you say, nothing to lose at that point. So he gets he gets treated. He gets he gets his nerve, he gets his ability to to jack in uh, restored, as it were. But it comes with a price. It turns out that uh, that uh, while they were doing that, they also have implanted a whole load of sacks of neurotoxin in his in his blood in his arteries and so on, which are slowly dissolving and can be unbonded harmlessly and flushed out of his system after the job's done. But if otherwise, they'll they'll kill him. Well, no, they don't even kill him. They'll They'll rest- put him back to the point where he was at the time. Everyone is so maliciously vindictive against him. I know, him. I know. You know, you could just, just shoot him if he doesn't do what you said. So basically, we've, we've introduced this very artificial clock ticking, time time's running out to do the job type thing into the narrative of that win. Of course, Molly, Molly doesn't entirely trust Armitage at that point and ends up falling in with Case in a sort of mini-conspiracy to try and find out who's backing Armitage and find out what's going on. They sort of agree to, to watch each other's backs and stuff. I think some sex happens there as well, but I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> I, I took your advice. I just yeah, you skimmed over it. Yeah. You were right. <laughs> I was listening to the audiobook. I couldn't. <laughs> Um, what I, I saw of it, it was, it was bloody awful. But it yeah, was, it, yeah, I, 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 yeah, yeah. You see, these things are so much more enjoyable if you skip over the sex. Anyway, so well, just a suggestion might be you don't put the sex in if you're writing these books <laughs> because they add nothing and they take away so much. It really does have that sort of sense of, of you could see in the original draft. There's like some square brackets in the text putting saying put sex scene here, and then the the, the narrative carries on continuously all the way through. But you can't publish it with that. So but it really you have in this a case go, you feels, have a stab. It feels like a sex scene written by someone who's read other sex scenes only. It feels it, well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd be yeah fascinated to hear hear what what either either of you regard as, as a good sex scene. Uh, do recommend some some some. Re, some it's not something re- I look for in literature, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and also it seems to bizarre and out of character as well. He's just recovering from sort of advanced neurosurgery and she jumps in basically and she's this fabulous, attractive and, and well set up and hyper competent and self con- self-confident street samurai ninja assassin woman and he is, is really uh, just a <laughs> just a nobody. It, it really oh is. yeah, but isn't when that the point? Him, is, I, the point mm. is he's the nobody with no prospects and you know, his life can't get any better. And then someone mm. comes along and makes his life better. Then the attractive woman comes along and wants him. And it's just playing on that teenage audience who are feeling a little bit down and want all these things to happen. Isn't that cynical? Or do you want Most to, fiction is. Or perhaps Gibson's trying to immediately deal with and dissolve the sexual tension that the two characters present just being no. together. No, no, no. It, it's definitely written to um, appeal to a certain <laughs> juvenile part of the audience. And, to be fair, when Cyberpunk first appeared, it wasn't written for forty-year-olds, uh, sort of with great discernment in literature. <laughs> it was written point, for fourteen-year-olds yeah. with oh look, sex! <laughs> Hooray! 
Ah, that was me thinking it was it was serious speculative fiction. Anyway, so yeah, they basically are then once once all this is done, they do some shopping and they go off and they, they have this. They whisk away on the on the beginning of this sort of big world tour to gear up for the big job. So the first first they go off to the sprawl. They they basically which is the uh, the Boston. Atlanta metropolitan access, basically in the in the future. Mega city one, <laughs> kinda. Um, yeah, the city sprawls all the way from Boston across to Atlanta. Was one massive great sprawl of of dome, geodesic which would, domes, which would mean sort. something if I understood anything about American uh, geography. It's, Apparently, it's, it's smaller than, than it Mega is city now. one. Very right, dense cities, okay. basically. We're saying, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so basically, we, we get to see sort of the cultural difference between Japan and 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 America in this in this in this future. I don't think it's ever stated when the book is supposed to. Be uh, set. It says previous century a lot and a couple so 20, of dates. Twenty something. I, I would. That, I imagined it around 2070, 2080. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So it's definite, definite sort of near future rather than you know gleaming spires and starships going to different worlds and all the rest of it. So yeah, we find ourselves all set up in in uh, in America, and the the first first business is to is to it's essentially a mini pre heist where we get to examine you know get to see see the team in action as they get they go after this important basically it's, it's a rom construct which is essentially a sense sense net recording of someone's mind state just before yeah. they died. Don't, don't don't try and explain the I tech. Know. Don't don't ever try and explain the tech. <laughs> Well, basically, it's <laughs> it's a ghost in a box. Uh, uh, they're after a ghost in a box of an old hacker, Paul. But it's uh, not intelligent. Dixie Flatline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a this is a book that desperately needed more techno babble, so <laughs> it shouldn't have used any real words in its descriptions of the tech. So this recording of the mind state of one of Casey's old tutors is stored in the basement of, of a massive uh, broadcast media company who do sim stim which is a kind of like playing back people's memories as entertainment type of thing um and so basically at this point it's getting a bit philip k dick yeah yeah there's all sorts of nods to that kind of thing so they go in uh, molly basically they hire a, a local local street gang to run interference and molly breaks in with case sort of remotely riding in um, on her sensory inputs or something and also doing cyberspace at the same time i remember reading uh, around i think i don't know if it was the wiki page or or in the in the afterword of uh, the, the copy i got but gibson was saying that he basically invented cyberspace because he was no good at transitions and he wanted to be able to i think his words was channel zap and you get a lot of that throughout all of the active cyberspace and sort of heist sequences where it, using in-world technology he's basically written himself an ability to just flick between what each of the different characters is seeing and what, what they're doing at any given time it, so, it would have been so much easier for to just have two characters in two different places. Yeah, well, you've got that, but then they're, they're sort of linked through remote control. Yeah, you would need the link though. You could just split between them. It, yeah, it would have worked yeah. quite well. Yeah, yeah. This entire and, cyberspace and, thing would have been needed. And, and what it also shows is that this is not the crew you want for a really difficult heist mm, because right. they're not very good at really difficult heists. <laughs> Well, basically, yeah, Molly, Molly breaks it. So they, they stage a massive nerve, sort of fake nerve gas attack diversion thing, which makes the entire building go on to lockdown and panic. And then Molly breaks in, and we're sort of flicking between her and Case, who's at the same time doing his cyberspace moves. And to be honest, there's not actually a lot of cyberspace in this book. In, in, 
it at all really there's like two major sequences uh, in the whole thing and yeah he's implied to be looking up stuff online throughout in, in the background as well but there's these two major runs one of them here and the other one at the end and this, this is before google was invented because obviously these days it wouldn't be so, quite such a challenge well yeah i mean the cyber, <laughs> cyberspace as as user experience you know, come to that but so yeah so he's he's basically running in he's, he's using cyberspace hacking mad skills to to open doors and locks and things for us so that she can get any more easily and that does sort of come across a bit like a sort of two-player computer game type experience you know sort of team working way through doors and puzzles and whatever um and then he sort of flicks back to see how she's getting on and she's she, her legs broken she's got like dead security guards all over around the place yeah for, for <laughs> such a badass which she's meant to be yeah she is useless her first Later on, she screws up broken. as well <laughs> and and you know if you've got these two characters mm. wouldn't it make sense if you're jumping between them that they could converse yes because because it seems to me that one of the one of the things that that in the first third of the book mm. it got more interesting when he and Molly started talking to each other. Mm. Before then, it was just pages and pages of description yeah, and, no and nothing interesting deck. happening. He can then use they talk to see through her eyes, mm. but and hear and hear what she's saying and what's what's going around her. But he can't actually talk to her. <laughs> yeah, like, and he's like, oh uh, good mm. lord, please just let them talk. Can we just it add an audio code to this transmission or whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they basically, more, seemingly through half luck and half judgment, they managed to get this 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 um, AI construct thing thereafter. Can I just say, mm. this entire heist, yeah, they are not the good guys. Well, that's interesting. I don't think anyone's the good guys really. By the time no. we get to the end of it, oh, in this this particular prep heist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, they, 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 there's good guys over here. And mm. they are so far on the evil, evil, evil bad guys. Oh, it's aggravated breaking and entry, yeah. Uh, getting people killed all over the shop. Yeah, they, they released some sort of hallucinogenic sort of, you know, panic drug into the into the water supply or air supply or whatever, and that results in... And then they tell the authorities that there's some kind of plague virus going off in the building, so they're, they're, all the riot police are keeping everyone in the foyer, and they're all going mad and clawing at each other and stuff. And then meanwhile, Molly's just wandering in and, like, you know stabbing security guards to death who are just doing their jobs. Yeah, I mean, it takes it takes a fair amount of skill to make you want to root for the protagonist in this one. But I, well, I it, it might. So. I don't think it did. No, I, I, <laughs> I, long before this, I wanted them to lose, I'm oh. afraid, just purely because of their actions. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they're, not, I, they're not good guys yeah, in any real not sense. Not because of the not because of the writing. Mm. This is a purely personal opinion. It, after they'd caused used terrorism to steal an app. Yeah. I'm afraid, no, at that stage, <laughs> there is no way on God's green earth I want them to win. No, but that's all right, because surely the overall plot of the main book has a higher purpose and greater good at the end. Um, yeah, so moving on. Um, yes, yeah, so then we get to meet the Finn, who's like, who becomes their, 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 their weird, socially awkward tech guy. And again, another sort of, you know, he's the sort of fence who knows all the technology, finds all the softwares and stuff, he's, has a real quirky sort of personality in his weird Aladdin's cave shop of junk. And again, this is another sort of huge cyberpunk trope spins off into into the future and all the derivatives as well. <laughs> so he, he gets then we then we end up going across to Istanbul to pick up Peter Riviera, um, who is 
<laughs> this, this just defies all logic. He's a real, he's, he's a wrong and they know he's a wrong and they've got psychological profiles that he's a wrong and, but apparently he's got this ability. He's had his lung removed and blah, 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 tech, tech, tech. He can project holograms um, with, with uncanny skill and make people see things. My uh, phone can do that. And so on. <laughs> Um, but he, he's a really nasty piece of work, uh, and I think his psych profile says that he can't get off unless he's betraying someone. Um, you know, and that's just <laughs> Nobody your team. anything <laughs> which happens next. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Um, so then, anyway, so now the team's fully assembled and they head off into orbit, um, where the big the big thing going on. So throughout this, we've been it's, sort of... it's a bit like they've t- you know what difficulty challenge do you want? Uh, and they've gone. Oh, we'll get one for impossible difficulty. We'll add it's that extra member of the crew who's bound to be helpful um, who's going to do going to kill us all it's um, like they're going for the achievements in a video game yes it, exactly that absolutely it does, it does come star. across as a really grubby episode episode of future mission impossible yeah <laughs> but um so yeah yeah they so they end up so we all throughout this we've been getting sort of vague hints at what the actual job is about because case and molly have been trying to investigate armitage in the background and find out what's going on and they come across the this winter mute uh, name as as the the big sort of backer behind armitage mm. Mm, yeah uh, and at this point you're thinking why is it called neuromancer um, <laughs> because you've got over halfway through the book and the word has not appeared it, yeah yeah it doesn't doesn't sh- <laughs> The actual, the actual name drop doesn't happen until way, way far in. So, yeah, so they, they, they end up in this this fabulously wealthy orbital spa sort of cylindrical Taurus space station thing, which is owned by uh, by the Tessier Ashpool Corporation. And again, here we have another sort of you know, pivotal trope spinning out is, is the big exotically named mega corporation with sinister sinister money and powers. And that, that generally, they form the sort of background leviathans and movers and shakers of any decent cyberpunk uh, sort of experience. And every single uh, police procedural in American TV for the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't um, get the feeling that these people were bad guys. I thought they were just getting on with stuff. Yeah, it's not entirely made clear what their their core business is. Is it just property? I can't remember. But they got they own the they own the massive space station that the the rest of the book sort of takes place on. So, so we end up in this sort of the the rude uh, Jules Verne. There's like a ritzy glitzy hotel and and restaurants and cafes and all the rest of it. And we we get a bit of society hobnobbing where the where P- this Peter Riviera fellow is trying to entice and get an invite into the Villa Straylight, which is on one end of the space station where the the Tessier Ashball clan actually live. He's he's basically his his part of the proceedings is to try and seduce Lady Three Jane Tessie Ashpool, who's like the the person who's actually there and awake. Because there's like eight or nine different clone generations, and they all spend different times in cryogenic and stuff. All very confusing. Um, so yeah, basically he's trying to get an invite so that he can open the back door to let Molly come in, and then then they've got to hack some stuff. And it's it's still even while they're up on the on the way up into orbit, they're still they're still not entirely been revealed what the actual gig is. You know, it's all been dribbled out to them at the time, which you know seems like a bit of a problem for prep and planning. And more of a problem for following the plot. Mm, yeah, it does get sort of revealed to you bits yeah. bit at a time. It, it holds so much back; it is impossible to get invested in what they're doing. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. 
<clears throat> so anyway, you get near and nearer to the actual heist itself, and it becomes apparent that right, what actually the the, the plot is is that the, the Tessier Ashpool company had in the past invested large amounts of money in the development of two AI systems, and one of them is called Wintermute, and there's another one called Neuromancer. Uh, and what Wintermute has done is he's, he's hired, he's, he's he's manipulating Armitage into putting together the team in the heist in order to essentially throw off its hard coded shackles to stop it getting too intelligent. It is. It is machine kill crush destroy overload it's fantastic there's this uh, there there's this organization called the turing police and throughout this we get very little mention of any kind of organized governments or police or, or militaries or anything like that there's this hints that they exist and that they're out there somewhere but largely the events of the book are allowed to carry on completely unchecked and, and uninvestigated but we get the turing police turn up um who are basically a, a law enforcement organization from switzerland who are whose job it is to try and stop computer AIs getting too clever uh, for, for fear and paranoid reasons, presumably. And also appear to be working so far out of jurisdiction they have no power. <laughs> you have to think that was international waters, really, yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of a run-in with them. Case gets like, rounded up, but then Wintermute manipulates various security systems on the space station to just kill these police quite summarily. Yeah, and even I mean, at that point, even yeah, the characters in context are starting to think that Wintermute's a bit of a wrong and, and, and is <laughs> utterly alien and cares not for your petty human concerns. Yeah, but, but the Turing police are sort of torturing and killing people for their own ends. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but they're obeying the law, apparently, which <laughs> allows them to torture and kill. And then they're just written out of it in a few sentences. Yeah, they come and they go. With this Ex with, <laughs> with a bound of the wickery. There, well, there was this, so there's a, I think a while ago, the BBC World Service did a, a really good full cast audio adaptation of it. But it, it, yeah, these these sorts of things get quite abridged, as you imagine. And the whole section <laughs> with the Turing police just didn't show up at all. They don't feature it. I mean, and you know what you can well, see. In why, the book, yeah. it feels like it was all heavily abridged. Yeah, mm. yeah. But you've got these these elite people who've all you know you've had descriptions of how they all their superpowers <clears> and they are and they're hmm. the only people that can do this and then three policemen turn up and then somebody else gets them out of it without them doing anything Li literally thinking, a deus ex machine yeah, yeah exactly you're thinking what the hell you know, <laughs> these people are supposed to be elite crooks couldn't they deal with three policemen on their own well he gets picked up because he's managed because when they did him when he did his neurotoxins and stuff they also bypassed his pancreas so that he couldn't get high on any drugs during the caper and, and the only reason that he gets picked up by these police is because he managed to find a specific kind of drug that still works and his office tits when yeah. it all goes wrong it's just wouldn't it have made sense uh, if it had been his liver because that's what breaks I, yeah. down drugs i think it might be the liver not, actually yeah no it wasn't it was the pancreas which doesn't make a great deal of sense <laughs> that helps you digest things uh, he wouldn't have enjoyed a meal at all during that whole cake okay, but <laughs> So finally, we get the actual the, the caper itself. So so Riviera has made his way in there with Lady Three Jane. Armitage is starting to come a bit un, un, unhinged throughout this last stage, and we get an added complication in that we discover that Armitage was in fact an, an old an ex special forces soldier called Corto, who was on some doomed attempts to break Russian air defences in, in an earlier skirmish or war, managed to shoot his way out and then lose his mind, ended up in a hospital where Wintermute, playing a very long game, managed to somehow rebuild his entire personality 
Um, and not very well, as it turns out. So he's starting to become unhinged and go all, all Narm flashback on them. And, and it could have been a really good idea, that. And it could have been a great piece of storytelling mm. if, for instance, he'd started to come apart bit by bit through the story and people had seen warning signs and started to get panicky, rather than Wintermute just saying in an email, oh, by the way, in 20 hours he's going to go mad. And uh, do you think... Oh, well, we can tell he's going to go mad because you've told us in advance. It really is like somebody's got the cheat book in front of them while they're doing this video game. And so they know what's next. Mm. There was no shock in his change or the threat of him, you know, going mad. Well, there was, was the sort just... of mystery of who he was and where he'd come from. And, you know, that was ticking along quite nicely. And then suddenly in the last sort of, yeah, exactly. The last, it was, yeah, the last it was just all written out. He was just written out of it in, in a couple of sentences by the cheat book you know <laughs> oh, pr press up down left right to solve this problem <laughs> i'm gonna say this and mm. i know it's gonna upset a lot of listeners but oh. this is not a well-written book mm. i've read better certainly <laughs> it's i don't know i think there, there is something to it it's actually there's a lot of very terrible. good ideas in there but yeah. it's, it's the execution it's, i think and the delivery perhaps i would certainly agree it's far more important than it is interesting it's 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 utterly mm. important for cyberpunk and for many many things that come after it but if, if if you chop it down into little pieces it does tend to fall apart it doesn't hang together it hasn't got a skeleton you know you chop it down and the skeleton's not there to look at mm. so we get to the sort of essentially what happens what becomes a sort of repeated heist arrangement very similar to the earlier one on the uh, the entertainment company and you know we're in orbit molly's on foot breaking in physically breaking into the the sort of end of the space station through various tunnels and so on cases outside in a in a rastafarian space navy tugboat uh, yeah, that Malcolm character was possibly the only likable one in the entire thing. <laughs> and, and the only one that doesn't go on to become a cliche in all cyberpunk afterwards. <laughs> Rastafarian pirates don't really loom large in the cyberpunk oeuvre. I quite like that. But that he was a bit of a cliche idea. Rastafarian. He was, yeah. So, so basically a whole bunch of Rastafarian space workers had basically gone up the well and, and decided to stay after they'd finished building whatever space station they were working on because Babylon and whatever. And basically they the the, tie, the tug and so on had been hired by Armitage to, to so that Case could sit outside the space station and do his, his cyber hacking from out there. And I didn't quite get why that was necessary when Cause, you know, interweb. I yeah, don't know. It's spatial, not yeah. Space. Anyways. Yeah, so we get a fair bit of space action there as well, which is it's, it almost seems out of place with the whole rest of the book, to be honest. There's you know, the depictions of spaceships and, and the the the, uh, the luxury yacht docking with the thing and then Armitage going mad and essentially being tricked by Wintermute out into space without a spacesuit on. So, you know, again, Case being a sort of passive observer to the chaos going on around him at that point and, and uh, I'll make a confession that's as far as I got myself um, I have read it once before um, I, just as an aside dear, dear listener I am st and currently in the process of trying to read six uh, potential Hugo nominees for the 2017 thing so I've been trying to fit in Ooh. the books for this podcast can I, can, can I say how many of them are better than this um yeah one two six yeah I don't know I'm only, I'm only two and a half in but <laughs> can I say for the record I got to the end of this book mm -hmm. and 
there's so many things in my life I could have done which weren't <laughs> the final heist. I, I have read mm. it before. I know what happens anyway. And also I've got a big wiki, wiki page in front of me here as well, which is helpful. So yeah, basically, um, so Molly makes it into into the, the, the inner sanctum of the Tessier Ashpools. She's, she's, of course, stumbled across one of the elderly Tessier Ashpools who's been woken up by the by one or both of the AI cores and has decided to kill himself after doing unspeakable things to say, a clone of his daughter or something. This is another example where she proves her absolute worth where Wintermute's saying don't walk down that corridor to her repeatedly. She yeah. walks down that corridor and gets completely uh, disabled by a neuro-something field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she just walks into a trap. Dump. Yeah, she's been warned about it. It goes, it goes that way anyway, because she wants to look around. And then, yeah, we get this weird sort of dynastic suicide thing going on there. Mm. And th- things keep happening, but actually, uh, as we've been described, realised I, I would best describe it, it leaks fr- leaps from anticlimax to anticlimax <laughs> towards the end of the book. It goes from one anticlimax to another. Yeah. It's brilliant. So that's kind of cool. She, she then finally makes it into find three Jane and Riviera. Riviera has absolutely predictably changed sides and now has turned against the team and manages to disable Molly with some sort of stun grenade or something. Uh, and then ties her up. And basically, I think he smashes one of her glass lenses or something. It's all rather brutal. So Case, at this point, having shown no signs of physicality or, or, or bravery or heroism, decides, oh, no, I'm going to have to go in there. So him and Malcolm actually leave the safety of their little tugboat, dock to the uh, station and go in after them with guns and stuff in a sort of weird action hero type <laughs> mode. Okay, well, action and hero are both... Yeah, and that, he's mostly just watching what's going on. Malcolm has a good old go, but uh, so at one point, Case uh, Wintermute tells Case to jack into a terminal to get some directions, and at that point, he gets ambushed and kidnapped by the other AI, Neuromancer. You know, he's taken this far into the book before Neuromancer actually does anything or is revealed, and it's basically a question, a sort of case of mistaken identity. Case thought it was Wintermute; it was actually Neuromancer. Neuromancer tries to sort of trap case in a kind of dream hallucination landscape where he has everything he wants and and i think i don't even think case manages to break out of this mind you know battle in the center of the mind type situation on his own i think malcolm gets him out he doesn't fight very hard Mm. malcolm ends up i think malcolm just sort of gives him a massive amphetamine overdose and sticks some some dub music on the headphones on and that sort of just disrupts it enough that case can break out of this mind typical saturday night actually He sort of breaks out of his mind trap he's fallen into that was set by the other AI. And presumably, we're assuming from this, the other AI doesn't really want the end goal. The end goal, by the way, is that these two AI meet wants to merge with the other AI and become something much greater. But yeah, the other AI, Neuromancer, doesn't, is quite happy as it is. So there's, there's a sort of... It's very hard to tell who's the protagonist any, and antagonist at any given time in this book, going most of the way through. Yeah. It's sort of... It's odd. It it, it it does just sort of things happen at the end. Mm. And we get we get the nin, the ninja as well. The ninja, yeah, the, yeah, because we had a ninja. The, so yeah, the, we've had a ninja, another sort of spun off archetype the, yeah, into, the, into the, the core the pencil, rule book. The penciled, the penciled in cliche ninja, mm. um, who barely speaks, barely Extremely does anything, polite, terribly efficient yeah. at martial arts. Yeah, is more of a robot than the robots. Mm. Anyway, so a lot of uh, there's some some chatting and some resolution at the end, and eventually they convince because this this whole AI linkage is is in place and hardwired and available. It just needs 
the, some hacking done. So di while this is all going on, the ROM construct of Dixie Flatline is doing the actual heavy lifting of the hack on the AI. <laughs> Case doesn't actually seem to do anything during the cyberspace bit of this uh, thing. He, he nominally rides this Chinese military icebreaker thing into the AI core in cyberspace. <laughs> And which at the same got, time, which somebody else got for somebody him. else got for him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all given to him, and it all happens around him, and it doesn't really do. It's, it's a bit like the Indiana Jones question. You know, if Indiana Jones had never appeared in the story, would it have finished any differently? <laughs> if, Ke if Case had just died in the street in the first <laughs> sentence, would the end result have been any different? He is absolutely interchangeable. I can't believe they couldn't have found an, uh, another more sane and sober cowboy to do the minimal or a heavy brick. lifting. <laughs> But it turns out that there's a hard-coded lock as well. Three Jane has to say a special password at her terminal at the time, so Molly manages to, Molly and Malcolm manage to sort of browbeat her into doing that. And, da-da! Yeah, <laughs> massive anticlimax. The two AIs merge to become <laughs> something else, and then it sort of does... It does a sort of forward to sort of three weeks later and they're in a hotel and it's all been peachy and you know nobody's yeah no resolution no, no the more you talk about it the more shit this book appears <laughs> I'm, really I'm not doing a great I'm, job of selling it no. I mean, we were meant to toning down our I, not liking yes, this i've toned down our objections so much i think that you the only one ranting against this tim <laughs> you've infected me with your negativity that's what it is <laughs> no you've no you've just read the plot and that's mm. all that's brought your negativity to the but floor. But it's the, not the plot. Well, yeah. So, so anyway, we get this sort of after after resolution thing where the the combined entity reveals itself to Case and says, "Yeah, everything's great now. I'm see, I'm on a whole new level." And it, you know, it's hinted that there are other AIs in Alpha, Alpha Centauri that he's chatting to and stuff like that. And after that, there's a there's a note on the pillow. Molly's left him because and you know, he not, never not, sees her again. Yeah, yeah. She, never she, say that in your book. No, he off. deliberately put that in after the yeah. rewrites to stop himself writing a sequel. Well, there were two sequels to this. Yeah, but well, um, he wanted to avoid them. <laughs> yeah, but basically, Molly leaves him because you know what happens after you know after the end of a movie. You know, it's taking the edge off her game. She's restless. Off she goes, and, and yeah, and that's about it, really. They're both fabulously wealthy because one of their rewards is loads of money, but they both have to go back to work. Well, they're both very bored, I think, which is why they go back to work. Yeah. So yeah, and he is. spends all his money repairing his uh, <laughs> pancreas so he can take drugs again. Yes, yeah, because yeah. that was really what he was aiming for from the beginning of this. Is just have slightly longer to die of drug overdose than he had at the beginning of the book. So sort of that's the happy ending, folks. <laughs> that's not a happy end, is it? Three hundred pages later, everyone's more or less where they were at the start or dead, and the the only thing that got what it wants was the sinister manipulative AI, which you know against all all safeguards laws and provisions did manage to augment itself and get out of the box in the end but somehow didn't go mad and kill the human race anyway so it really i no. book i suppose <laughs> yeah yeah but i i still really like the book not because yeah i mean i've just done a terrible job of trying to sell it <laughs> on plot alone but it's not the plot it's the it's the set pieces it's the lavish again that we here we are again looking at a hugo novel where the the stories are all right the characters are near the sex writing is awful but the, the world building is really really interesting and and really sort of innovative and quite inspired i mean i you know i mean it's it's one of those weird ones where you can sort of look at the the you know anytime numbers are actually mentioned you know like oh this 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 rom cartridge holds a whole three megabytes you know and we could sit in here chilling <laughs> away you know but the, the the basic concepts and paradigms of, of an information world 
I mean, and this was 1980. We didn't even have AOL cover discs back then. I don't believe that didn't kick off until the 90s. I mean, the internet as a thing. What was that in the in the 80s? Arpanet. Mid 80s. It was. Oh, well, it was Arpanet. Really. Then it went on to be uh, university stuff. Yeah, and this is this from from an author who who wrote it on a manual typewriter and had never seen a computer. Apparently, I don't know if that's publisher blurb or whatever. But you know, he's he's not you know vastly technically. Savvy, no, it's certainly believable that he knew nothing about uh, the technology of computers. Well, um, it obviously, it's because he's never used anything we actually had to interact with a computer where you realize that actually going through a 3D landscape pushing things <laughs> is the worst possible UI you can come up this with. This is a lifelong argument, me and John have had. I've always maintained that cyberspace would be awesome, but then I do prefer playing computer games to doing work. Um, and I, in these days, I do tend to concede that, yeah, there's a reason, I mean, there's a reason Windows is a desktop, you know. It is. It is literally a, a you know a desktop on which there are folders, on which there is a waste paper basket with actually a little picture of crinkly paper in, and that sort of thing. It's because most people dropped into the cyberspace depicted in this book as as and remember the cyberspace isn't just a playground for computer thieves. The purpose of the cyberspace in this book is is a, is a, a user interface for manipulating large amounts of data. And and here we are in you know twenty seventeen with folders and little pages and shortcuts on a desktop because that's what works and and cyberspace it well might might be great for gamers is is not great for for the average office person I suppose but the the idea of the sort of connected world information everywhere just the the sort of extrapolation of how things were going in the eighties with regards to technology. It, it, some of it seems quite uncanny to me. I don't know. Maybe I've noticed in both of your notes for this episode, you both put you both put variations on how dated it seems. Um, in places, uh, it it does. But I actually, when I realised he'd never written a book before, I could I could accept a lot of the problems with this book. Hmm. I mean, the the plot desperately scrabbling out of the massively complex description which mm. was all he cared about and all he was writing and and it, it the plot managed to just keep its head above the surface for the first half of the book and then it just got lost completely mm. um and the fact that and, and this is my fate it's it's a, a personal preference thing rather than something utterly failing in the book but personally i like to like somebody in a book or indeed a film and i want to have somebody to follow along and enjoy and in this there was lots of big explosions and excitement but i didn't care about any of it because i didn't care about anybody in it mm. and how much of that was by accident or deliberate i mean the whole i think he was deliberately isolating certainly early on yeah. he was deliberately having this drug-addled waster who was yeah. isolated from the universe and that was brilliant at first an experiment but, uh, in unlikability well, it needed I, I don't, to change by the end yeah. i don't need to like somebody in a, a piece of um literature um i if someone's incredibly unlikable i'm fine as long as they're interesting enough for me to want to know what happens to them if it's hmm. watching them collapse into a self-destructive orgy of drugs and uh crossing people fine as long as it's interesting enough to pull me along and mm. his arc in this you can't it, even call it an arc it's, it's really a flat line. yeah yeah well yeah i mean i wonder if if <clears throat> if it's a sort of deliberate narrative device in that we don't want the 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 protagonist the sort of the viewer the, the reader's point of view to be too interesting in and of themselves it's more of a spectator and viewer of everything else that's going on particularly the the set pieces and the lavish descriptive 
locations, yeah, I suppose. It, it needed Michael Bay directing it. God help us, but it needed Michael Bay. <laughs> need more it needed helicopters. explosions, helicopters, and human emotions. Mm. He's shit at emotions, but he's better than William Gibson at this stage in his career. Mm. Or it needed someone like Philip K. Dick to ha- just have an out there weirdness to keep you going. Mm. A lot of it seemed believable and not oh wow, you know, in, yeah. in a way that a lot of very, very, very speculative science the, fiction can be. Yeah. The world building in the first half of the book is utterly brilliant. It really is superb. I do think once they get into space, he just kept on... The space it, seems a bit odd, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, it didn't really work as well. It wasn't as interesting a world. It didn't feel as real. He wasn't describing it as well. Mm. And everything that happened felt like, you know, turn to page 13 to go left, turn to page 15 <laughs> to go right. Well, by the time you get into the orbital you're not really you're not really on board for a jolly rocket adventure because it's clearly not that kind of book up to that mm, point so yeah. so yeah it does seem an odd so, scene change i'd almost recommend reading the first half and then stop mm. and your imagination will ha- create a far better book than the reality because mm. it's it has many good things about it the world creation is superb it really is um the, the you know many many things have come from this i it's don't really yeah. important I don't think there's another book we're going to cover on this which has affected culture in the same way. Yeah. This yeah. has had the biggest impact out of any I of I can't books. remember if Snow Crash was a Hugo winner or not because I, I don't think it was. It's, it wasn't, but it should have been. It's, I a, be- it's a good Wikipedia. version of this. I clicked through on Wikipedia to the cyberpunk page, and that is, mm-hmm. my God, that's a lengthy essay that someone spent a lot of time <laughs> and effort and research working through. But this is sort of credited as the main explosion of cyberpunk in it, mm-hmm. author, to begin with. And then and then the, the opinion is that the, the cyberpunk movement sort of ends at Snow Crash in sort of nine, late 90s or whatever. And that, that sort of starts to take the whole thing into crazy excesses. Yeah. And after have that, we, we end up moving into a different kind of science have we all read? There. Have we all read Snow Crash? No, I haven't. Have. Oh, it's uh, it is one of my it's certainly my favourite cyberpunk book. Mm. Um, but I suppose I, Snow Crash uh, could be seen as the sort of end result of that whole movement well, of, of Snow, I don't know, twenty years. Snow or Crash takes cyberpunk into a more biological way as well. Mm. It, it goes for more the brain as a computer. This is very mm-hmm. mechanical. This is all about yeah. silicon and, and I, implants I think, and. and I think cy- that's the problem. Cybernetics. Technology overtook this book. It didn't go the way. Yeah, we thought, and, yeah. and it got to the point where, yeah, okay, you you've got this matrix, fine. W- mm. We have that something way better than it now. Well, may, way more useful. Yeah, yeah. but it's not, and not we a cinematic use it every day. Yes, yes, the internet of today is nothing like yeah. you know Gibson and cyberspace, but Gibson cyberspace is something that uh, people used because they had to, whereas mm. the internet is something they use because not using it is more harder. organic. Absolutely, yeah. So there were two sequels to this. This is the first in the Sprawl trilogy. There, I think there's Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive, possibly in in either. <laughs> not sure which way around they go. And to be, I, they're not as they're not as iconic. They're not as well well known. I mean, I have trouble remembering the plots of both of them. I have read them both, but they just. I remember. I know that Count Zero opens with 
what essentially is the Wintermute super entity, having decided at some point between the two books to split itself into about 30 or 40 different voodoo spirit gods and then distribute itself across the across the internet for reasons. And so, <laughs> so those books, you then start to get more of a kind of techno-voodoo pagan cultism thing going on throughout them all. Uh, <clears throat> but they are very similar in, 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 in sort of scope and design and, and backstory and world building. But um, we don't, I think Molly, I think Molly turns up as a sort of cameo character in the third one that we don't get to see case ever again mm. um, I, I mean in this book i was really confused because the way they were described and the way they acted all the way through it mm. i couldn't see any palpable difference between the dead person who turned out to be a program and yes. these ais <laughs> yeah there was no difference in the writing or, or any anything that happened. So this or the is way the Dixie Flatline, who yeah. more or less behaves just like another character, a sort of genie well, in the box computer. Specifically, uh, manages to make the decision that he no longer wants to exist. Yeah, he, he decides that his payoff for the, his part in the heist was to be erased. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the AIs are somewhat inscrutable as well. I mean, the interesting thing, I suppose, that mostly come you know, from recent rereading through this is there's no real character in there that is a good guy or or or, or, or you who whom yeah you want to win in the conventional heroic sense. They're, they're, all, they're all nasty pieces of work for in me, varying degrees. For me, Dixie was the only character I liked. I suppose so, but then we've only got sort of a sliver of his personality and we don't know what he was really like but yeah the wrong construct yeah he, he got he got on with his job he had some something of a sense of humor about it and at the end of it all he just wanted out yeah. Yeah. and yeah we shared an end goal while going through this book we mm. both wanted this universe to end that's <laughs> <laughs> a character you could most identify with. i quite like the uh, rastafarian pirate i thought he was quite fun yeah and yeah. it was very sketchily written and and yeah, you know yeah. you never found out was we know three things about rastafarians one is they go i and i they say zion occasionally <laughs> yes. and they something, have something dreadlocks. something yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that's all we Basically need to know ganja uh-huh right okay tick done moving on oh and yeah. then ub40 uh-huh. ub40 will fix your <laughs> flatlining if you um get if you supplement it with a, with a massive overdose yes. of eth- amphetamines yeah well we learned valuable lesson here today yeah <laughs> I mean, I could quite go for the Molly character, but then there's a lot in there that you sort of pick up that actually she quite likes violence for its own sake. And, and there's, it's not so much sadism, but a sort of cold clinical appreciation of her own abilities. There's, she, there's, she just yeah, likes also, fighting, you know. There's also the story through that turns out that she doesn't like Peter Riviera because mm. she used to be a whore who switched off her mind and the, let a computer oh, use her that, yes. body while she got raped and abused. Yes, and, that's, that's basically and how she because paid she for was, her upgrades. Yeah, yeah. Because she was unconscious, she didn't remember it and didn't care, and therefore as long as she lived through it all each, each time, it was worth the money and and he'd had a recording of her doing this, and she hated him for it. And you think, mm. oh, good. Yeah. Did we did we need any of that? I, I don't think I don't think it added much to the story. Well, it, certainly, it, sort of... it certainly made attempts to increase characterization and add more depth, but they sort of seem sporadic and, and no, ill-aimed, I suppose. It's, yeah. it's there for the teenage audience again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, was that was that some more sex? Ah, I can't yeah. really pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know. I mean, in spite of all that, I like I like this book a lot. I think mostly just because there, there is a really solid genre built on on this <laughs> one book in a way. I mean, yeah, supplemented and augmented by the other works. I mean, he's done his, his more recent work, pattern recognition and that sort of thing, and Adoru, a more sort of contemporary cultural analysis. It's sort of more based on you know the marketing and PR world of the modern age, and and based very much in current day sort of phrasings and terminologies and much more nuanced and introspective pieces compared to this so i suppose you know uh, that the length of time you continue the craft of writing the more subtleties and and, and competence you pick up in it all i suppose it's they're a lot less sort of rough and ready than this is this is worth a look. yeah you know where the idea for armitage came from mm. um came from uh what was it uh uh I should have I should have actually had the page up before I asked that question. Um, it was uh, Kurt Russell in um, Escape from New York. Escape from New York, oh, where, really? where he comments to Lee Van Cleef about uh, um, the, the battle in Helsinki or something. Yeah, that's just mentioned in passing, yeah, and that's where old, the idea of the, the screaming thing. fist lot came from. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, I've got an afterword <coughs> written in the copy I've got. So it was written 10 years later by Gibson, and he cites uh, his references, his influences, because he obviously gets asked a lot, you know, what was your inspiration for Neuromancer? And he sort of comes up with Tiger, Tiger, and Stroke the Stars, My Destination, basically Alfred Bester's sort of mm-hmm. second Hugo winner. We haven't covered that. We covered The Demolished Man, but it would, uh, I think Stars, My Destination, a few, a few years later. It's <clears throat> yeah. Tiger Tigers and yeah. Stars of Destination are two versions. Two, it's the same One's American, same one's British, yeah. but it's the same book. Yeah. yeah. Very, then, very good book. Well, I remember when we were talking about uh, The Demolished Man, how we were sort of talking about how cyberpunk sort of precursor, how mm-hmm. proto-cyberpunk it was. And here we have, you know, from the horse's mouth, Gibson saying that, you know, yeah. Bester is essentially a large part of his inspiration for what's what becomes cyberpunk, but sort of written sort of 20, 20 or 30 years earlier. Uh, Interzone, it's a poem by William S. Burroughs. I don't know much about beat poetry, but there you go. <laughs> you know more than me. No, I think we're all at a loss there. And also the Velvet Underground eponymous album with the Andy Warhol cover with the banana on it. Apparently, you listened to that in a club, and that sort of went some way to sort of influencing what this would then become. I suspect it was what else was going on in the club. But, uh, did <laughs> that not the album? Uh-huh. Uh, so we, okay, we better sum up then. So, Tarak, what did you think overall? Um, I admire this book more than I like it. Um, Is this interesting, but not fun? <laughs> There's a lot of that in the Hugo's we're finding. There's a, there's the, the world building is brilliant, and I really enjoyed the first third of the book as long as I just paid attention to the world building. Mm. But as it went on, it got worse and more empty and more hollow and more just, oh, I've got to finish this sentence to finish the book. Is it the unlikable so, characters or just the badly written characters? I think I think it, it's it's even starts with the unlikable characters, so that's not the problem. It's just that it gets less and less well written towards the end. That he's it's not a bit writing, more frenetic. He's not writing excitement. He's just describing things. It's almost like um, a, a report on a terrorist atrocity or something. Mm. Fifteen people were killed in the uh, incident, and it's just think that's all that's being written. It's not making it in any way exciting at the end. Mm, the beginning's mm. great the ending is an utter failure to mm. me but it, it's i'm glad i've read it <laughs> yeah i've I, I never read, read it this before, before. Oh, yeah. because i no, i because i think about it i never liked and uh, now i realize what it was um, <laughs> I, but I, i'm really glad i read is really good mm. um 
John, what about you? Summing up there, what are you doing? Well, it's an important book in a not very good way because if this book hadn't have happened, so many other things wouldn't have come along in the same way. And given the choice of rereading this book and watching the only Matrix film, I will watch the film every time because that Ooh. covers all of these concepts in a so much more interesting way. Mm, and there's and a sort of has pace and stuff happens. Well, also you've got the sort of examination of free will and, and humanity there, which never really comes into any kind of sharp relief during during Neuromancy. Yeah. Yeah. This is a book that had an idea, ran mm. with the idea, but didn't have enough ideas to make a book. Yeah. Well, personally, I loved it <laughs> because, as we're as we're discovering throughout these episodes, I, I'm just a real big sucker for for fantastic world building, and can on the basis of that can let a lot slide with story and characterisation, which I admittedly are quite sort of sketchy and and, and weaker in this. I think than the world which, that happens in, which is great. I really admire your ability to do that. I don't think that's a failing on your behalf. <laughs> I think that's a real. That's really great. I, I wish I could do I bring, that. I bring my imagination with me and do half of the yeah. work of the author myself which I think is probably not the purpose <laughs> still. Uh, excellent. So there we go. Um, I, I, I recommend this, but uh, with all the caveats you've been listening to for the last hour or so. Uh, so next time, see, I didn't say next week this time. Next Brilliant. time, um, we're going to be looking at The City and the City by China Mayville, uh, the 2010 joint winner uh, for the Hugo novel there. And I've picked this one. It's my pick. Uh, I picked it because I've read it recently and don't have to read it now because I'm still still got a mountain of 2017 nominations to get through uh, more about those on another show uh anyway with that we'll see you next time goodbye, goodbye. cheerio